The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. This is Ellie Weiss and today my guest is Ron Thompson, an amazing man of many talents, a wildlife biologist, range conservationist with the U.S. Forest Service, and a wildlife manager and even a law enforcement supervisor for the Arizona Game and Fish Department. He retired after 20 years, then came back as the statewide big game habitat program manager and large carnivore biologist for mountain lions and black bears, again, for the Arizona Game and Fish Department. So welcome, Ron. Thank you, Ellie. I appreciate you having me um, on the show. It's wonderful to have you here. I also want to add that uh, Ron and I met a couple of years ago because we're uh, sort of co-colleagues on a, another project that I've talked about before on Our Wild World and with Wild Eyes Foundation, which is the Condition Taste Version Project. Ron is working and one of the core team members on that, and we'll get into that a little bit later into the show. But let's start, Ron, with why don't you give us a little background? That's um, how did you get into wildlife biology? Um, and I mean, this is a fascinating background. Why don't you tell us how you got into that to where you are now? Well, I actually um, was driven into it by choice and partly by accident. Um, I, I entered a science fair and my project was working on um, bird malaria in, in quail. And um, the person that reviewed that paper um, was to be my future wildlife um, professor and mentor. And from there, it's pretty much, um, you know, just a, been a great career, a passion, and something that um, I have no regrets for anything I've ever done. Well, I can certainly attest to the passionate part of that. Um, I find it amazing that you would do, how old were you when you did this first paper on bird malaria in quail? That is not a typical um, subject matter for a young person to go into. How how'd you come to that? Yes, I was. It was six. I was sixteen years old, and um, I had spent um, most of my childhood just uh, beating around the woods out out back. Um, my parents always seemed to live out in the in the far north forty whenever we moved from town to town. As my dad was an engineer, and um, because of that, I just fell in love with just being outdoors all the time. I was never never around on weekends for sure. 
<laughs> well, definitely growing up in uh, the woods and in the wilds makes a big difference uh, in, in terms of uh, how we're affected as children. And especially at 16 years old, you and I have that in common. We spend a lot of time in the backwoods growing up, which gives that, um, that sensitivity and typically that passion for the wild. So today, the subject of our our talk here is um, large carnivore conservation and the sledgehammer effect. Why don't you tell us what the sledgehammer effect is and what it means? Yeah, the, the sledgehammer effect. Um, I'm going is fully credited to um, authors and and um, puma biologists Kenny Logan and Linda Sweener. Um, Kenny currently works for the Colorado Division of Wildlife, and Linda does um, independent research and is an adjunct f- faculty with um, the University there at Colorado, Fort Collins. So th- they conducted a 10-year study in the um, San Andreas Mountains here in um, New Mexico. I'm currently just across the valley from that mountain range in the, in, on the Armandadas Ranch, which is Ted Turner's 250,000-acre um, ranch. And they studied mountain lions, um, the most concert comprehensive study that was ever conducted um, for during a 10-year period um, in, the, in the San Andreas Mountains. And it was just uh, the most complete work ever done. It shattered some um, um, previous thinking about how mountain lion populations were controlled before um, many, many biologists felt it was, they were controlled intraspecifically through um, fighting and, and high um, intraspecific fighting mortality rates. But uh, the, the Sweener and Logan um, showed that um, prey actually controls mountain lion populations. So you're definitely into large carnivore conservation, and large carnivores are typically the big cats, wolves, um, and, and sort of into the mesocarnivores. So your passion, as I know and I'm aware, is mountain lions. And um, lately we've been talking about... Uh, the U.S. of not only the U.S. Wildlife Services, but the loss and declines of the U.S. North American large iconic species because they don't have quite the same protections as endangered species. So let's talk about mountain lions for a little bit. Why are they? I mean, these animals resonate deeply within our human psyche and our mythology. We both revile them and we love them. And they shape our landscapes, as you had just said, in terms of predator-prey relationships. So tell us how you got into mountain lions and some of the work that you're doing now. I understand you're with Primero Conservation. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, you know, originally... I- it was because I was a game warden in um, a management area called the Blue Primitive Natural Area um, in northeastern Arizona along the uh, New Mexico line. And in that area, it, it, uh, the United States um, U.S. Forest Service and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at the time, both agencies, were looking at um, bringing wolves back into the Mexican gray wolves back into the environment and using that as the primary release site. And it just happened to be the unit that I was uh, managing at the time for the Arizona Game and Fish Department. Um, and at the same time, there was a huge conflict going on with um, wildlife biologists and wildlife services. And it was mainly over Arizona's state and um, federal laws that that pretty much allowed um, mountain lions to be trapped at will if um, you had a livestock operation on public lands. 
And um, there was a lot of abuse of the system at the time. um, In fact, when I took over the unit, there was actually still 1080 um, out on the landscape in um, some areas to kill large carnivores. And I'll never forget um, being horseback in a a wilderness area. And the person I was with, um, I I noticed it's called a covey set. It was just a bunch of brush piled in a in a kind of a V shape, and I, I noticed a glass jar uh, with some meat in the back of it, and I started to pick it up, and I was warned that it was um, 1080, and of course, 1080 had been banned for use um, by the President of the United States, Nixon, um, many years prior. So we've had some discussions over the last couple of weeks with uh, different guests on Our Wild World talking about wildlife services and uh, some of the misuses, some of the ethical conflicts going on and the um, concern over reform of this agency, which we'll not get into too much today, but obviously you have had a run-in with one of the big contentions about wildlife services, uh, this compound 1080, which we talked about before, has no cure, is very lethal, is banned, and yet it's still out there in our landscape. And as we talked about, it's easy for someone uh, like Ron, to uh, who is out there in the field, to come across something like this and be injured, let alone the wildlife that it kills and the uh, ramifications and collateral effects. So, um, in terms of this deep uh, relationship that we have uh, all over the world with large carnivores, how do you go about in your work reconciling this dilemma from the perspective of conflict mitigation, where oftentimes these species, as you just said, are uh, for no real particular reason when it's not necessarily causing a conflict, but uh, preemptively removed. Is that the sledgehammer effect? Uh, Yeah, exactly. The sledgehammer effect is uh, managing um, large carnivores by um, harvest data. Um, that is, you know, allowing um, lenient, sometimes year-round, um, open seasons on, on large carnivores, um, having very strict um, human conflict guidelines that pretty much just result in the immediate removal of the, of the animal um, lethally. And then watching the, the composition of the age data within the, the kill data, um, and and then adjusting, you know, over a period of years, you know, maybe um, a little bit to be a little bit more restrictive, or maybe even more lenient in some cases, or to just ignore the data. And th- and that's that's I think what um, Linda and Kenny were trying to express in their, in that term was a sledgehammer effect was um, to just use a sledgehammer um, to manage uh, apex carnivores. So when you're talking about kill data and historical data, this is data that's been collected in terms of predation, and these guidelines are typically geared in favor of livestock, ranchers, and uh, grazing rights on public lands? Uh, I think most states currently have laws that, you know, that allow um, individuals to, number one, um, protect themselves, uh, which rightly so. And then number two, of course, to protect their, their private property, which in this case, the common denominator is always livestock. And, and it is worldwide. I mean, livestock, uh, um, human, um, the, the human ownership of livestock is, is really the, the cause of um, perceived and sometimes real um, conflicts with predators. And um, that's the part that we have to really come to understand, that 
um, predators are not just like other wildlife. They're not like, um, you know, highly hunted and uh, managed um, prey species. They're, they're um, you know, the apex carnivores in particular, they're far-ranging um, because of GPS and DNA. We're just now tr- starting to understand the, the, the amount of country that we, the landscape we have to look at, the size of it, to understand um, how to manage them better, um, also because of their their social, the complex social structures between, you know, especially in wolves and, and mountain lions. Um, if you look at GPS, if we're just now starting to put together maps of um, GPS, radio collared, large carnivores. And, you know, they're multi-state in nature. Um, and it's not necessarily large carnivores. Uh, wolverines, for instance, are, can use four or five different states um, in their, to, you know, to make a living from. And we, we have to really, really understand the, ex, the amount of country that these, these animals need to, to be able to manage them. So that brings me to a question. You work mostly with private landowners, correct? Yeah, I, I feel that um, that is working with private landowners gives me the greatest satisfaction. Of, and, of course, I'm extremely lucky to, to be working on um, property owned by the Turner Foundation. And is it, what is the benefit or what's the difference? You said you're extremely satisfied to work with private landowners. How does that change? I mean, I can make assumptions, but how is that different than working for the government and under the government guidelines that are geared toward livestock? How do private landowners, um, who I'm assuming want to coexist or are willing to coexist with predators, how does that work? Well, they're, you know, they're, they're willing to try something um, different besides just re- lethally removing an animal. Um, on the ranch I'm looking at now, I'm working on now, we're, you know, we're looking at um, water denial. Um, you know, we're trying to reduce predation by uh, um, mountain lions or cougars, as you call them in Colorado, on desert bighorn sheep. And, you know, of all the 250,000 hits you get on Google about um, pumas and mountain lions and cougars, uh, there's not a single one about their water requirements, but they do need water, and of course, in the in, when it's really hot, they need it daily. So the thought is, um, why not actually deny them water using modified water developments um, that allow desert bighorn sheep to drink, but not um, not mountain lions? Um, that would reduce the the interaction between the predator and the prey species. But bighorn sheep are historically mountain lion prey right um i'm glad you used the word historically um you know if you look at the the evolution of mountain lions you know they were actually um extirpated um um, around the pleistocene um, when the larger prey species disappeared um you know they were only pretty much found in the brazilian um, amazon basin and through six different radiations, they were able to recolonize North America um, over that 12,000-year um, period. And during that period is when they came in contact with humans. And, of course, then European um, man and woman entered the, the scene and then reduced, once again, reduced their, their distribution greatly to just the roughest parts of the, of the Rocky Mountains. It, the mountain lion is an incredible animal. It has um, a sense of survival that we're barely beginning to understand, as you said, in terms of the tracking and the collaring data. So 
I want to go back. We have a few minutes until our first break. I'd like to go back. So you're working with private landowners who most with huge acreage, which I'm assuming typically abuts BLM land or federal land, and that these livestock operations um, may let's purge over into these public lands where uh, wildlife like carnivores should be able to exist in the wild and freely. So what happens when, in terms of predator management and control, when um, predators come, move across private lands to public and when livestock moves across from private lands to public, what's the difference in dealing with uh, those predation issues? Well, you're, you know, you're you're looking at, for instance, um, kill site data where you're you're going onto public lands and seeing what the animal killed, and you're recording recording that data. In a two-year study that I um, um, assisted with in Texas um, very recently, um, you know, we radio collared um, or GPS collared with satellite collars um, 16 mountain lions, and out of 165 kill sites. We'd found not a single livestock um, animal killed by a mountain lion, but the perception was that you have to kill them because they're killing livestock. Um, do they kill livestock? Yes, we you know we we do know that. But there's they kill livestock only in in certain habitat types with certain vegetation cover, and um, there's you know there's there's a mix of um, animal husbandry practices that can actually. I mean, you know, cause higher mortality rates due to predation. And then, of course, um, to be able to, to respond to that, it's, it's lethal removal always. And I think as, as biologists, it, you know, we have to look at, um, hey, is there something we can do different than what we've been doing for the, for the last 100 years? And um, condition taste aversion, um, water denial, um, you know, requiring animal husbandry practices to be, be improved, to synchronize breeding, removing your calves from the country – um, you know, I mean, prey selection is all about size and threat that the predator, um, you know, is evaluating constantly. And, you know, you won't hear about a thousand pound bull being killed by, by a mountain lion. So we're talking here with Ron Thompson, wildlife biologist and uh, co-founder in, uh, of Primero Conservation. Uh, he's a mountain lion expert, one of the few. I'm going to use that term expert. So we're going to take a short break right now, but stick with us because we're talking about what happens in terms of conflict management with large carnivores and livestock on both public and private lands. So we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. 
Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris. Real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back to Our Wild World. With We're with Ron Thompson, who works uh, with mountain lions, spends the majority of his time out in the field, which we're going to learn a little bit more, a life that's living out in wilderness and amongst large carnivores. And he's been talking about uh, the relationships and what happens in terms of conflict mitigation between large carnivores and uh, livestock ranch owners. And Ron works mostly on public lands. So um, we'll get into, in a minute, the organization you work with, Primero Con- Well, let's get into it now, Primero Conservation, because you actively seek solutions with private landowners to... Um, find different relate different ways to mitigate conflict um so tell us a bit about primero and how that got started yes it was um all came about as a result of sitting around a campfire and um of course maybe a little tequila was mixed in but um we, we felt there was a need for an organization to um explore some d- definitive um non-lethal management prescriptions that would assist livestock owners in actually increasing their beef production um, while reducing their loss, losses to large carnivores. And at the time, I was, you know, we were sitting along a campfire in Mexico, I want to point that out, in Sonora. And um, we were on a ranch with that, of the rancher, of a rancher who is a, a con- great conservationist, um, um, and his, na- his name is Jesus Moreno Martinez, and um, he offered his ranch as a study area. And from that, um, we, we began to um, analyze what his problems were. Uh, he had a 50% calf crop he, you know, of 100 cows. He was only uh, marketing 50 calves at the end of that um, six-month period. 
And he wanted to increase that, and he wanted to decrease his losses to, to predators. Um, of course, that involved, uh, you know, he would have to maintain his current uh, management strategies, which were um, putting cow calves um, that, that were dropping year-round because of year-round breeding in extremely rough country and constant contact with predators. When it dried out, they all went to the river, and that's where the predators were. Um, but what, was, what we really found out immediately from looking at the camera trap data to figure out what kind of prey items were out there was that there, there, there weren't any peccaries. The javelina were almost non-existent, whereas they should have been um, at levels commensurate with um, deer levels. And so an entire prey species had been taken off the menu for mountain lions and jaguars on his ranch. And we asked him why, and all they could say was that they disappeared from the country. So that's when we started looking at um, why and, and drawing blood and looking at um, amounts of um, titers against canine distemper virus. And we hypothesized that um, that virus had actually um, you know, made a sweep through the country about 2002 and wiped out most of the peccary population. So here we're talking, really, we're getting, um, we're, we're working around the fringes, but the intense relationship between predator-prey, ecosystems, and human uh, manipulation. So the benefit that, that of campfires and a little tequila is that you get into a position where people are more willing to work with you and come up with ideas. So um, that is one benefit of not working with the government, which has this sledgehammer idea of just remove it all. You get willing people who um, have a, a relationship with carnivores, want them there, and um, also, you're doing other work in Sonora. You're involved in uh, with a, an ongoing jaguar conservation there. Can you tell us some about that? Right. I mean, the most of the predation, um, the finger was pointed at jaguars in the past from um, past fe- fecal scat analyses. And but when you're talking with the cowboys, they would all say, "No, it's the puma that down here that's killing our calves." Um, but the biologists are telling us it's the the jaguar. And so, um, you know, we went out and we're, we collected another 100 scats. But this time, we're, we're actually varying, verifying where the scats are coming from, you know. That was not done previously. And in the previous study, you know, it, it was the diet by um, volume um, in scat was 40% livestock and jaguars um, droppings. And that, you know, that um, if, you, if you run the DNA on it, you know, we're finding out that um, – hey, there's not that many jaguar scats laying around out there. In fact, it, it took us over a year to even collect one. Um, but we, we did realize that it was the, the predator that was really preying on um, livestock the most was, was probably the puma. Um, and our, our camera trap data shows you know, a ratio of about um, three to four mountain lions for every jaguar in the country. That the jaguars are decreasing now. I mean, we we initially identified 16 individuals from rosette patterns from, on cameras, and now we're down to to eight, and probably half that, all within about a um, two to three year span. And eight, our, eight jaguar are left in this area. Just in yeah, this one the, the study area that we're monitoring with our cameras, which is about 400 square kilometers. Um, you know, we 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 could in the past catch about. 16 different animals but now we're we're down to far less than that and all, all our last study animal that was collared was just killed this last week and um and they're today they're down there investigating that that kill it was it was um human caused we know that but our gps collars um technology is telling telling all this um so 
that's that's one of the frustrating parts about studying large carnivores is that a lot of your study animals um, disappear. And that brings me to a question that you know I'd had was bringing up somewhere in our conversation. So um, we have study animals. It's happened with the wolves, the collared animals there within a protected place. And we all know protected places are very rarely fenced. They are open to um, public lands, open ranges, private lands. Is there any way that you can think of in terms of what you just said, a study animal, the, the, the tremendous loss of data in when someone kills a study animal that's been followed for as many years as you've been talking about? Is there a way, well, this is a two-part question, what happens when you lose all that data and to a research program, how do you get started again? And the second part, is there any way to work with the governments or the ranchers or the in these buffer zones to not kill a collared study animal you, you have to work with the land you know landowner um, the government has limited resources at, you, know, you know in in both countries um, in our sonora sample for instance you know, you're actually biasing a lot of your data if you if you um, inform ranchers of hey you know our animal just killed some livestock on you but but um at the, we actually wrote that into this project and, and that we would notify the rancher of um, mortality caused by um, our study animals. And, you know, we found that we found landowners very receptive, except in the extreme cases where um, if you have 100 cows that feeds your family and you have a 50% calf crop, which is, you know, 50 calves, and um, you start losing additional animals because of predators it you know you're you're waking up each morning and you're part of your paycheck that sends your kids to school or clothes them or feeds them or you know supports the community is gone and so the the government um in mexico actually has an insurance program where they pay for losses um, by caused by coyotes um, lobos mountain lions and jaguars unfortunately the repayment um, insurance program is only paying about um, one fourth of the value of the animal because of guess what our human c- consumptive demands in the United States hmm. all pretty much all the beef in Sonora Mexico right now is coming to the United States and and um, brought across the border sold for two dollars and five cents a pound or more um, and then of course it when we go to the grocery store to pay for it, we're paying $5.04 a pound. But the, the, we're talking um, amounts that are twice what they were, you know, just three to five years ago. And so it, it, the economic incentive now is, you know, they, that's, a lot of people cannot afford to lose um, animals at all. And predators, unfortunately, are, um, you know, even though they're fully protected in Mexico, mountain lions and jaguars, you can't hunt mountain lions in Mexico. Um, except in um, the state of Chihuahua, for instance, where they, the, that's been given to the state to manage. But um, the federal government manages apex carnivores in Mexico. Well, that's good news. That was uh, leading me to another question. But before I get there, I would like to point out to our listeners, 
Um, and what I've been talking about previous, previously on Our Wild World is that our consumption habits do make a difference. And if you've just listened to what Ron said in terms of people trying to make a living, growing cattle, uh, raising cattle, we don't really grow cattle, sorry about that, um, but those cattle are meant for a destination that is not in-country. It's meant for us. So when you go to the store or you go to McDonald's or you go to Wendy's, think about where this beef is coming from and the relationships that these cattle are having with the land, on the land, and with our carnivores. There is a reason to reduce our meat consumption so that other animals can survive, especially our carnivores. So that leads me to a point that um, it is a viable reason for predator control um, that people are losing their economic interests. But let's talk about economic costs from the perspective of the ecology. What happens when the biomass changes on these areas to be more cattle, less prey species for carnivores so that carnivores turn to cattle? What happens to the ecosystem here when we start losing these large carnivores? Well, I, we we were testing that hypothesis by actually increasing prey species. Um, I mentioned earlier that the, this this one particular area um, regionally was were lacking in um, a major prey item, which were um, peccaries or javelina. So we decided we're gonna we were gonna release, we're gonna raise and release um, those animals, and that's where Linda Serrell's um, Southwest Wildlife Conservation Center came to the came to help and assist us with. Um, the transfer of urban conflict javelinas to Mexico, it, you know, it was the perfect win-win situation. And we took javelinas that were eating people's gardens in Scottsdale, took them down to Mexico, quarantined them, then we um, you know, vaccinated them against canine distemper virus, and we released them in the, into the environment. And what we what we saw with um, it was a prey switching. It's called. And, you know, animals are fully the apex carnivores are able to to switch to various preys depending on the makeup of the of the prey within the environment. So we changed that within our our study area. And of course, for every peccary deer or uh, deer sized animal that a, a large carnivore is eating that week, they're not eating somebody's cow. Um, it made perfect sense to us, and so that's um, that's what we experimented with on this on Jesus's ranch. And um, Primero Conservation assisted with this effort, but the you know the PhD student that was working on this is the, uh, Dr. Ivanka Sain, who's a veterinarian from Mexico City, and um, Rodrigo Medellin, who's who wrote the book Jaguar in Mexico. And this was all you know, we were all brought together by a, a local Aspenite there in Colorado, Sally Rainey. I want to give her credit right now on, on this show um, for getting us together. Um, she's the one that was passing the tequila bottle around. Um, <laughs> I know, Sally. To, to get us to start this organization, and she was successful. Well, that's incredible. So uh, just a minute ago, you had said that uh, the large carnivores, jaguar and mountain lion, are protected in Mexico. So that must make a very different uh, habitat uh, area uh, for you to work in, in terms of, let's say, there's a starting point that is more geared to having these carnivores or do you find that people are just again just as against having these carnivores in Mexico as they are in the United States does that protection provide a better starting point 
you know, the, the ranching community, they, if they have a perceived problem, they still take care of the problem. And um, they've been doing it for, you know, 100 years or more. And um, it's, it's, they're still being um, lethally removed and um, in, in remote areas, very quietly, use of poisons, um, traps, snares. I mean, I, the one jaguar, the two jaguars that we had collared, we'd, because we'd contacted the ranchers, we were at one point, um, they were actually trap set. We had actually, um, you know, kind of saved them from immediate lethal removal. They were, they may have been removed um, later, but um, at that time, you know, we were able to get additional data because we were able to contact those people. You have to remember that in um, in the United States and Canada, we, you know, we had the best wildlife law enforcement system in the world, and um, even in in Mexico South, um, they have limited resources. You know, they can't respond in a timely manner. Um, to these remote areas, um, and you know, they're not made highly trained in, in um, wildlife enforcement techniques because they, you know, they administer and, and, and um, regulate other crimes, okay, largely you know, dealing with narcotics. And so that to kind of leave you know, that aspect of it and then switch over to a dead jaguar is a, is a hard move to make, which is what they're, what they're doing today. But um, they do respond. They're there. Um, but evidence is, is hard to, um, you know, have unless you've got GPS collars, for instance. And very few animals are, are collared right now with GPS collars. Burning is the way of getting rid of the evidence in, in um, the country we're, we're working in. So um, you, you made a point there that the U.S. has the best wildlife management system in the world. So we've been doing a little bit of expose and, and revealing uh, the not so good parts about our wildlife services, which is not necessarily the wildlife departments that Rich, uh, excuse me, Ron is talking about. So explain to us, we've got a few minutes, explain why our system is the best in the world for wildlife. Uh, well, initially, uh, um, there was a model called the North American Model of Wildlife Management that, um, you know, that just basically says wildlife is a public resource that would be managed for the, for the good of the, for the whole. Um, and that, you know, that if it's not endangered, then it belongs to the, the, it's the property of the state to manage. And so each individual state with their agencies manage um, wildlife in the United States. Uh, endangered, endangered species are managed by the federal government. And then once they become restored, the populations, they're turned back over to the state. Um, so that the because, though, that the, the public feel they have um, the ownership of the wildlife, you know, that it belongs to them. It's in, in their trust. Um, it has value to the public in the United States. In Mexico, it's federally owned. Um, it, it's not hunted publicly. Um, it's only hunted, you know, by on private ranches at um, very high cost. Um, there's no opportunity to even enjoy wildlife because you're, you're not allowed to trespass on private land without, without permission. So it's a, they have limited access to wildlife, whereas in the United States we have open wildlife access and huge amounts of public land. And um, but the, there's competing, re, you know, um, competing use of the public resource, especially the forage re- resource that that um, livestock use. 
Wow. I'm glad to hear that because um, a lot of people and what's going on when you hear a lot of public commentary, uh, we seem to be losing our wildlife uh, from that European model of extirpating those things that compete for our resources. So we're with Ron Thompson, wildlife biologist. We're talking about uh, conflict and carnivore uh, livestock management. We're going to need to take cut away to a little break, so stick with us and we'll be right back. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Carla Howell, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back to Our Wild World. We're with Ron Thompson. He had mentioned Linda Searles earlier. We had hoped to have Linda join us today, but uh, she's dealing with wildlife issues, which Trump being on this show. So hopefully we're going to have Linda back joining us later. But uh, Ron and Linda work on together on several projects. As he had mentioned, this uh, pecorary reintroduction. What are some of the other projects that uh, you work on in terms of collaboration with either private landowners, other organizations, and governments? 
that bring stakeholders to a roundtable and a discussion and uh, willingness to hear this data in historical importance to move forward to a place where carnivores are accepted on the landscape. Oh, you know, we've used Linda's fine facilities, and you, you do have to go to them sometime. They're 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 the best in the country. I mean, they're they're amazing um, how she cares and, and rehabs wildlife. But um, in particular, we had questions about um, condition taste aversion for for mountain lions, and um, she offered us two of her animals to actually be um, used in uh, in that taste aversion uh, test, and. Um, you know, fit, everything was filmed, um, and you know, involves feeding a, a, a mountain lion uh, their diet, or a, in this case, it was a, a, a package of meat that was desert bighorn sheep. And then the second night, um, you treat the package with a chemical called thiobenzidol, um, which is rather all since she does is give you gives the animal food poisoning for the night. And um, there's there's not even any, there's no convulsive um, acts you know reactions or anything. It's just the animal just becomes quiet and, and um, is just thinking, whoa, that thing just made me sick. Um, we can we all have had ex- similar experiences committed to our long term memory. And then on the third night, you the, you feed him the same package, um, untreated um, meat, and they completely rejected it. Um, tested again a month later, six months later, it's a complete rejection. So, so that's the condition, taste, and aversion that we've talked about before. That we're, Ron is a core member of the team. His data and his study and his research on the collared lions that he's working with is critical to this study because CTA has been uh, poo-pooed by uh, the main community that is a an unworkable, non-lethal alternative. So Ron and I and several other team members are working uh, to say that it is a workable uh, process. It needs tweaking, but as Ron has just said, it does work on mountain lions. And uh, we've all had that experience where we've eaten something, made us sick, and we can't look at it again. So Ron, you said you treated a bait of bighorn sheep. Now, here's the question. Bighorn sheep are endangered. They're being reintroduced on both public and private lands. And so why are you giving a bighorn sheep meat package to a mountain lion when you don't want to lose a bighorn sheep? Just, and I'm trying to make this clear for our listeners, what CTA is about. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it sounds almost unethical to treat an animal against nat, um, natural native extant prey. And, but in this case, the, the option is the, um, that animal, um, you're saving that animal's, you know, life, okay? Um, again, mountain lions are highly social. Um, they have occupied territories. So if you're trying to reestablish an endangered species, um, you know, desert bighorn sheep, for instance, um, it's not endangered you know, any longer in, in New Mexico, for instance. It was state listed, but um, they've been restored um, mainly because of the removal of mountain lions. Um, hundreds of them, but now we have to, you know, the poor at the point where, hey, can we can we continue living with um, mountain lions and predating on desert bighorn sheep? Um, the answer apparently is still no. We're they're still, you know, lots of states are still removing uh, mountain lions um, in the West that in desert bighorn sheep ranges. So what if you had some kind of a technique where you could out there go out there and um, substitute or leave meat packages? Um, feed mountain lions, and then they would be, um, you know, averted 
uh, against desert bighorn sheep meat. I mean, would you try it? Would it we'll also work with chickens and Darwin's foxes, um, African golden cats, um, African lions and livestock, um, just a bigger, just a bigger cat. And, you know, we, we feel the answer is yes. Um, what if you could freeze dry it and, and give it to the cowboy to, to um, when he finds a dead calf out there um, on the, in the countryside and treat that um, particular animal and, in hopes that they would no longer they, um, use uh, beef as a, as a um, diet in their diet. I mean, that, these are things that um, people really need to, you know, seems to me logically to try. So what you're talking about when you when you just said a, a critical aspect of CTA, Condition Taste Aversion, is that the knowledge is transferable. It's not expensive. It doesn't require um, really uh, controlled substances. TBZ is an easy, uh, ex- easily accessible substance. So, and the thing about, I'm not sure about jaguars, but mountain lions, when they kill uh, their prey, whether it be a bighorn sheep, a cow, or a natural prey, they bury it and they come back. So by p- passing and transferring this knowledge of how to treat uh, the carcass that this mountain lion is killed so it will come back when it feeds, um, it, that works. Have, have you collared mountain lions that have come back to feed on a treated bait and what have been some of the results? Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's the that's one of the things we're going to be looking at on the in the country I'm working in now. But um, in the past, you know, I had a rancher in. Um, I gave a talk in, in Texas. Um, There's two people talking. One person um, was telling the landowners <clears throat> what they need to do to to get big desert bighorn sheep um, released on their translocated on their private land. And one of the ten point um, of a hundred points, one of the ten point. Um, criteria was to that you had to kill mountain lions. <clears throat> then I had to give up and give a talk about mountain lions and predation on desert bighorn sheep. And in the Kofa National Wildlife Refuge um, with radio collar mountain lions, we showed that um, different mountain lions have uh, different uh, propensities to kill um, the predate on desert bighorn sheep. Some are some do it at a high rate, some at a low rate. So what we did in, in the Kofa National Wildlife Refuge is after um, a protocol of killing two sheep, that animal would be, would be removed lethally. So what we found out was the land-tenured male um, that was removed, that was killing um, two sheep every six months, was replaced by a couple of um, younger mountain lions that were killing sheep at um, 10 days to you know every month. So we actually increased predation rates based because of the lethal um, removal of, of those animals. Um, that sounds similar to what we were talking about last week with um, Project Coyote and uh, Camilla Fox and Dr. Robert Crabtree, who is uh, one of the scientists in Yellowstone, that as you, quote-unquote, mow the lawn or sledgehammer effect of removing uh, these carnivores on the scientific word, I think, is called exploitation uh, or harvesting. But what it is is killing all these carnivores and removing that what you just said is that it actually increases predation. So younger animals are not learning from the older animals of what is typical prey and they're turning to available prey. So um, what are more of the successful non-lethal methods of keeping large carnivores away from domesticated livestock? That is entirely up to... um management actions that need to be implemented by the livestock owners. I mean, it's their livestock. 
um, on public lands, they're you know they're paying a livestock owner pays a dollar thirty five a month for for a cow to graze on public land. Okay, well when I was a when I worked for the range uh, as a range conservationist for the Forest Service in the seventies and eighties, it was a dollar thirty five a month. Okay, so the the price is the same, but brief prices have um, tripled and quadrupled. So some of the methods would be um, you know herding livestock, um, time breeding, um, um, you know. Animal husbandry, practice, husbandry practices that, um, that allowed for removal uh, removal of your livestock when they're calving to um, predator unfriendly landscapes that are, that aren't as vegetated or flat. Um, you know, management plans that address all those. But there's only so much land out there that that you can manage in this manner. And then, you know, we're going to have to um, have a huge paradigm switch or, or I feel to um, be able to manage public lands um, in a carnivore friendly manner. And that means combining um, grazing allotments and using the, the flatter terrain um, to, to calve, you know, livestock on and the rougher terrain to um, run your, your, um, you know, your livestock when they're, when they're not present with um, one to six month old calves. Um, and there's very few places that you can do that. There's some community lands in Mexico that they're that they're looking at doing that too. But it's a uh, you know people need to decide on how they want um, their public lands managed um, um, to coexist with livestock and predators. It, you know, I, I sincerely feel that it can be done, and I think we have some really good livestock operators out there that are willing to to listen to alternatives, but they have to be proposed and supported by the public. Well, you bring up a really important point. People, that's us, that's you and me. It's people like Ron, it's people like the landowners that Ron works with, and it's the individual people that work within the governments or the wildlife services. So, as we've talked about today with Ron, it really is a web. It's interconnected. Um, So, a diet of switching to eating less meat around the world would make a huge difference along this paradigm shift toward a much more carnivore-friendly planet. So that's something our listeners can think about. I'm not asking you all to go vegan or to completely stop eating meat. I am asking you to think about what eating meat in our society, uh, the consequences, ramifications, and how it bleeds out. Maybe that's not the best term to use, but it came to my mind. How it bleeds out into the rest of our habitat and conservation and protecting these species. So, Ron, we have a little time left. You work uh, in what many people would call exciting, adventurous, and often dangerous uh, areas and jobs. So I'm sure, even with that caveat, that you have a singular memorable event. Would you mind sharing that with us? I will, um, because it it had a, it just I feel it recently had an interesting um, ending that had a huge impact on me, um, even after being in the wildlife management field for. Um, 40 plus years. Uh, it's when we we took urbanized conflict javelina or peccaries to Mexico, um, cared for them and raised them to a population size where we could uh, release them onto this ranch. And for the for the first time in many many years, um, there were we you know there was a prey item on the landscape um, that really was innocuous, um, not harmful. You know it was omnivorous, um, non-threatening, and, but a huge prey item for, um, 
both mountain lions and jaguars. And there was this prey switching where they were these animals that we'd raised were all of a sudden being killed by um, these are radio collared um, carnivores. And to me, there was this kind of satisfaction of, over uh, the ecosystem being funct- fun- totally functional again in that area. And then, of course, the resultant impact on the livestock, um, positive impact on the livestock operator. What was the, the sad ending of all that, though, that had um, kind of a, a sledgehammer effect on me was that the last jaguar that um, was was recently um, killed in Mexico, um, we believe the, that animal was poisoned, um, and they used a javelina carcass um, as, the, as the animal that they placed the poison in. So um, to poison an animal for killing natural prey, to me, that's the epitome of um, our inability to... Um, Live to live with har- these animals. Yeah, to live in harmony with large carnivores. I'm not sure that we can ever live in harmony. Um, it, I sometimes feel it's an overused word, but I know if we work together um, with people like Ron and people like landowners and people like me and people like you out there listening, that we can come to a balance but this balance is going to require, as Ron has said, and as we've talked over uh, many episodes of Our Wild World, it's going to require a radical shift in the way people address living on this planet. Uh, if we want a wild world and we want wildlife out there, then we have to uh, decide uh, and change our consumptive habits, whatever it is, whether it's plastics, beef, or corn or GMO, it's all having effect on this interconnected web that is our wild world. So we have um, a couple minutes left. Ron, you were telling me something about uh, a story where you were kicked off a ranch in Texas after treating a lion? Right. It was the, this one particular ranch was owned by a, um, a very prominent conservationist in Florida, and the ranch was huge. And um, after hearing my talk, he actually came forth and said, you know, I'd be willing to try a conditioned taste aversion. So as soon as we were able to um, get a radio collar on a mountain lion on that ranch, uh, we tracked it until it killed a desert bighorn sheep. Um, we left the treated package, which is, by the way, just a cattle dewormer, okay, that they give to cattle to deworm them. But it has a huge um, kind of a... a food poisoning effect on um, carnivores. So the animal came in that night, and instead of finding the sheep that it had killed and cached and covered, it it found this package of sheep meat, which it promptly ate. And then we tracked it um, to its next kill. And um, after a week, that thing had only killed um, a badger and um, a deer. And then it left the mountain range. Because it was in a desert mountain range where I feel we, we had actually eliminated uh, uh, part of the menu for the diet of that animal. So I had to go to another mountain range to make a living, a mountain range that um, had invasive Barbary sheep and, and feral hogs in it, by the way, and, and um, actually invasive um, elk in the same mountain range. So I was able to go to back into a different prey-rich environment, but um, it did not return during a, a whole month period. Um, to that desert bighorn sheep range. 
so that Lion probably ended up once again being killed, even for doing what we wanted it to do and what it's supposed to do. So it's too bad we're out of time today. I want to thank you, Ron, for being with us. I'd love to have you and Linda back. And once again, this is Ellie Weiss in Our Wild World. And thank you so much for being my guest today, Ron. You're welcome, and thank you for having me on the show. You bet, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 